guys. Here we go. She Runs Ultras episode number 107. Now, I have been wanting to do this one for a while. Don't know why it hasn't really come up before now, but today we're going to talk about running at night. Over, oh gosh, probably like the last couple of years, I have been posting about my early morning walk runs in the dark, as well as some of the overnight training that I did to prepare for 100 mile races and for the Tahoe 200. And I've gotten lots of comments, questions, concerns about night running or simply just being out after dark. And I wanted to take some time to sort of talk about my experiences as well as give you some tips and things to think about ways that you might like start to do more of this yourself, especially if you're someone who's really apprehensive about the dark. Before I launch into any of that, I just want to get on the record. I don't like the dark. Like just because I've been doing this for a while doesn't mean I fully love it. I mean, I definitely enjoy it more than I did previously, but I'm not like giddy to go outside and run around in the dark by myself. There's always just like a little bit of apprehension. I can't really point to one specific incident that caused me to feel like I don't like the dark. It's just sort of how I have felt for as long as I can remember. And I think that I justified it to myself when I was little by saying, oh, when I grow up, when I become an adult, it'll go away. (laughs) Here I am (laughs) at 43 years old, still having some of those same apprehensions about the dark. And um, so, you know, I figured it's probably time that I should just deal with this. (laughs) So the other morning when I was actually out on my walk, I was thinking about doing this episode and thinking about, okay, well, why is it that I, I don't like it? What are, where, what's the source of my fear or apprehension? And I think that I was really able to identify the origin of this. And in a very simplistic way, I think it's because as women, we're taught to be aware of our surroundings and that's much easier to do when it's light out and much harder to do when it's dark. You can't see more than a few inches or feet in front of you and around you when it's dark. So by default, our sense of safety is diminished. I mean, one of the things that I hear from people in the comment section about some of these, uh, when I post, you know, videos or images from being out in the dark is like, how do you do that? You have no idea what's out there lurking in the shadows. And that's true. I have no idea. This is why I take lots of lights with me and I'm constantly sort of shining into the dark to see if I can see eyes shining back at me. But at some point you just have to be okay with the fact that you don't know. And that for many people, including myself, can be tough at times. So I sort of want to just like talk about it here. So it's not because I was like scared as a kid or whatever. It was just like, I just had this generalized distaste for the dark. Hasn't really gotten any better, but here I am. I'm trying to work on it and I'm just going to share what I did that has increased my comfort level with you guys. So hopefully it will help you too. Um, so I think the two main questions that we're, we want to talk about today are how do you overcome the fear first and more foremost, and how do you keep yourself safe? All right. So that's what we're going to talk about. I would just like to also put in here. I'm not an expert on overcoming fears. <laughs> I'm still afraid of snakes and big spiders and long division without a calculator. So, <laughs> so there's that, but I have been able to spend hours Um, at a time out walking and running in the dark and be able to work through this fear. And the way that I started doing that is by 
microdosing. Now, this is not the type or kind of microdosing that you might be thinking of. I'm talking about microdosing as a concept. This idea of doing something in tiny, small doses, so small that you can't fail, rather than, well, I don't like the dark, so I'm just going to go do all of my runs in the dark. Okay, hopefully you see the difference. One is like two minutes, one is 24 hours, right? Start small. This is how I built up a tolerance for the dark. I would go out for short walks as the light was getting low, like right after sunset where there's still that sort of ambient light, but it's not light and it's not totally dark. And then I would slowly build up time um, during that period of time. Then I would go out when it was dark then I would go out in the middle of the night, right? So I just slowly ratcheted things up. I didn't jump into the deep end of the pool. And I did this strategically. I would go out without, you know, my headphones, or I mean, I would have my phone with me for for safety, but I didn't want to be engrossed in a podcast or songs or anything like that. I wanted to really experience it because when you tune it out, it takes away that experiential element of being out there in the dark, running, walking by yourself. All right. I wanted to listen to the sounds. I wanted to have sort of that full body experience about what it was like. And I did this in increments. Like I said, low light, dark, really dark middle of the night. And the middle of the night stuff was specifically for the purposes of training sleep deprivation. So that got really interesting because there were a few times when I was just really, I was super tired out there walking and running around and having to battle through seeing things, you know, like your eyes start to sort of play tricks on you when you're tired and you're out in the dark. So just as a side note, if you are planning on doing a long distance race and you're going to be out there at night, and it's going to be an overnight training, nighttime, sleep-deprived running is a must. Um, so when I did that, you know, I, I mapped it out so that by the time my 100-mile races came around, I wasn't paralyzed by my fear of the night. I wasn't super excited about being out there at night, but I also wasn't, like I said, paralyzed. I was slightly apprehensive, but had lots of time under my belt doing it so that I knew that I could feel comfortable. And especially in the race context, I knew that I would be passing people every so often. So I wasn't truly by myself, but I also wasn't going to be running in a pack of people. So somewhere in between. So this is a strategy that I would recommend for you guys as well, especially if you are not a fan of the dark. Start small go out when the light is getting low, keep your, leave your headphones at home, you know, and just experience what it's like. And then slowly and gradually build up over time to go out when right after the sun has set, when it's really starting to get dark and then go out after it is completely dark. Now I did most of these alone, but a lot of the overnight ones, like the late night, midnight, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. things, I did with somebody else just for comfort and safety purposes. But I also didn't want to do it with a huge group of friends because I didn't want to get acclimated to that. Um, but of course, there is safety in numbers. And so I felt better going out for those midnight to 4 a.m. runs when I had someone with me. It was either my husband on a bike or friends or, who, you know, but I kept the group small. So keep that in mind as well. 
So I think that's the first step in this process. Don't throw yourself in the deep end. Just start small and work your way up from there. So since we were sort of just talking about safety and numbers, let's switch gears and answer the second part of what I wanted to talk about in this episode, which was how do you keep yourself safe? Okay. Um, I am personally blessed to live in a place that's relatively safe as safety goes. I live in a very small town with a population of probably like 2000 people. So for some of you guys, that might be relatively big, but for some of you, that's probably very, very small. Um, so I'm telling you this because, um, for a little bit of context, right? Because what I do now is different than what I would have done when I lived in say Boston or Arizona, or when I was traveling around the United States. So I just offer that, like I said, for context, because you're going to want to evaluate your safety protocols. Don't necessarily copy mine. I mean, I might give you some tips and tricks and things to try, but don't necessarily copy mine because again, I live in a relatively small place. And that's not to say that stuff doesn't happen here. The percentage or the opportunity is just a little more reduced. Okay. So let's talk about some of those things. These are in sort of no particular order, but these are some of the like basic safety things that I think you should be doing. Honestly, some of them, regardless whether of it's day or night, and a lot of these are not going to be new to you guys, but I think they're really good refreshers. First, always tell someone, when and where you're going, including your intended route and your anticipated return time or how long you anticipate being out there. It's just the smart thing to do, you guys. It's not like someone's trying to keep tabs on you. I mean, in a way they are, but it's for, you know, it's for your own safety. So just tell them where you're going. Um, I always like to wear my road ID um, or some sort of identification. Road ID is just the the thing that I've been wearing for a while. I don't have any affiliation with them. It just happens to be a very convenient way for runners to have their um, any medical information, contact emergency contact information on their body, and people don't have to, you know, hunt around for it. So you know, say you trip and fall, uh, and someone comes upon you, they don't have to rifle through your pockets. They can just look at your shoe or look at your wrist in order to find that information. I always carry my cell phone, always make sure it's charged up. Um, at the very least, even if you don't have a lot of bars, you could make an emergency 911 call. Uh, lots of people I know send a live track or turn on their location services. Again, this is probably going to be uh, more up your alley if you live in a more urban area where cell service is more reliable. It comes and goes here. So for me, it's more about carry my phone, tell someone where I'm going and when I intend to be back, wear that road ID, right? Uh, Wearing brightly colored gear, obviously, right? Being able to make yourself visible, keeping yourself safe, especially at night, right? Even I'm always amazed at the number of people, both cyclists and runners, who go out at night wearing dark clothes. I mean, I get it if that's your wardrobe, what you have, but at least make an effort to put something bright on you so that cars can see you. Okay. Um, here's another one that just baffles my mind on a daily basis around here. I see someone who is not walking against traffic. I see so many people walking with traffic with their back to cars. I don't know why that's a thing still, 
but it is, okay? Walk against traffic so that you can see the cars that are coming up on you. I mean, it 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 freaks me out when I have to, you know, cross a street or walk like on a short section where cars are coming up behind me. So please, please, please walk facing traffic. Now, those are definitely things to be done during both day and night. Let's talk a little bit more about nighttime stuff. I mean, definitely all that stuff that I just mentioned is going to be important at night because again, people knowing where you're going, what time you're going to be back, having ID, having a cell phone, being able to see you both like if you have your location services turned on your phone and see you, keep you safe if you're wearing brightly colored clothing so that cars can see you. Having a headlamp, obviously very important if you're going to be going out at night. And I typically have a headlamp plus a backup flashlight or like a backup headlamp just on the off chance that something goes awry. If I'm going out really late when it's going to be really dark, I will also wear my Kogala light. It's like a waste light that is is very, very bright. Uh, And so you can make the choice about what and how much light you want to bring with you, but I would always just have some sort of a backup available. Um, this is also one of those things where you could wear, uh, a physical light, like a, one of those Knox gear vests that sort of lights up. I have one of those. It's, it's very fun. It just makes it like, you know, you can have your own little dance party with some of the settings on that thing, but it's like just another way for you to be seen and be safe. Uh, going out without your headphones or what I normally do is put my phone in my pack. I mean, I'm wearing my pack all the time, even on some of these walks, because it frees up my hands to be able to, you know, hold a flashlight, hold a dog leash. Um, also just be at the ready, like have my hands ready so that they're, if I, in case somebody, I don't know, comes up on me, surprises me. I want to have both my hands ready to go. Um, so I don't do headphones, or uh, if I do headphones, the volume is super low so that I can hear what's going on. Um, but definitely not at night. I try to keep headphones out, put my phone in my pack pocket on speaker if I want to listen to something so that I can really hear what's going on around you, uh, or around me, I should say. Now, some of you guys I know like those bone conduction headphones. I've not used them So if those work for you, I guess that's great. But I think the key thing here to remember is that you want to be able to be aware of your surroundings. Um, Last night, actually, on our Run Your First 50K call, we were talking about race strategy and I showed the group my pack and it had all of my stuff in the pockets, you know, like my, my lip balm, my little thing of trail toes, my... Uh, knife, my pepper spray, and they were asking, oh, what self-defense tools do you carry? So I think that's the next sort of thing is like, okay, if we take all the proactive measures to tell people, have identification, cell phone, wear brightly colored clothes, walk against traffic, have our lights and no headphones, like what else could we do? And this is where we sort of dip into like the self-defense stuff. And again, I'm not a self-defense expert, but here are just some of the things that I've personally tried. And I think having talked to other runners, having talked to other self-defense experts, um, are the things that are going to be helpful for you to have heard and maybe try and experiment with. Now, very top of this list, and this comes from a friend of mine who is a self-defense expert, have your dog. It's 
kind of silly. You would think like that's a very low tech (laughs) self-defense mechanism, but it's very true, right? Um, a lot of times I will have my dog with me and it's, I think it's a big deterrent for people, but also she hears and smells and alerts me to things that I wouldn't otherwise necessarily see. You know, she has finer tuned senses that I do than I do. So it's very helpful to have her with me. I mentioned the pepper spray and I mentioned the knife. I did a little Googling. Um, it's, it's legal. It is okay for you to carry pepper spray in all 50 states. So if you want to have that, if you're down with carrying some pepper spray, it's legal for you guys. Um, knives are going to be a little bit trickier because depending on the style, the size of the knife, uh, it may or may not be legal. The knife that I have, I know is not legal in Massachusetts. So I can carry it here in New Hampshire, but it's not legal for me to possess in Massachusetts. And that's just because it's a retractable, uh, sort of spring action retractable knife. And that's just not okay in Massachusetts. So definitely do a little bit of reading up about what's legal and what's not. Um, that brings me to my next one. Some people carry little mini tasers. Again, do your research and understand what you can carry, what's legal, how to use it, what's how it's legal to deploy it, and all of that jazz. This this goes for you know all of this stuff. You just want to be very aware of the tool. You want to know how to use it. You want to understand how to use it and the context in which you will potentially use it. And that's especially true for the last one, which is a firearm, right? Where legal and when you are adequately trained to handle and discharge that firearm. So just, you know, regardless of what your stance on firearms is, just hearing this next point, right? And hearing it clear is very important because it applies to any tool that you carry. It's crucial that whatever you choose to have with you that you understand how to use it properly and swiftly. So whether that's pepper spray, your taser, a knife, or a firearm, okay? You need to practice where you're going to carry it on your body, how you're going to deploy it, and you need to think about in what potential situations will you actually use it, okay? I think this is the one that it wasn't until I started carrying some of this stuff that I was just, I was like, oh, you know, I I have this tool and I feel comfortable using it, but at what point will I need to use it? And in having some conversations with, again, um, friends who are instructors and self-defense experts, the hesitation is the thing that is the most dangerous. Because if you hesitate, you will eat up precious seconds And if you're already panicked and you're already in fear, you need to know how you're going to handle a situation so that it's swift and effective. Okay. So whether that's you run literally running away or you having to deploy your tool, and I'm not advocating for, for having to deploy these tools first and foremost as your primary, um, 
self-defense, I think the, the thing that you need to keep in mind is that your intuition is always really powerful. And so the best thing you can do is not put yourself in a precarious situation. The second best thing you can do is listen to your intuition. So if you start to go down a path or you turn a corner and it just looks a little weird, the best thing you could do is just turn around, whether that's cutting your run short, taking a different route, you know, calling somebody to come pick you up, whatever. I mean, I've done every single one of those and that's always a better choice if you have the choice, okay? If you don't have the choice for whatever reason, that's when you need to be prepared to use whatever tool, self-defense tool, you choose to take with you. Okay, let's talk about a couple of these other self-defense tools that I sort of get inundated with ads on on social media. The first one is this alarm, like a handheld alarm that you either pull a pin or push a button or whatever. It makes like this really loud siren sound. Um, I think that probably would work in a more urban area, but out here, probably not going to be the best spend of money and use of my time. Um, The other thought that I have about these is that these days people are really immune to the sound of car sirens and alarms going off. So while it might seem like a good idea, it's not necessarily going to send people running to your aid immediately, uh, strictly because people have just become immune to this. Like it's more of an annoyance now than a, a scream or a cry for help, right? So just keep that in mind. I'm not trying to if you have one and you like it, that's great. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. Just think about it from a a strategic uh, point of view. The other thing that I keep getting these ads for are, I don't know what they're, I don't know what else to call them other than these like pointy rings. (laughs) They're these rings that have like a jagged point on them and you wear them. And the idea is that you would poke somebody with it. My personal thought on that is, um, it's not going to do much damage. And if they're that close, you have a bigger problem. And if they're that close, you should probably be deploying something more, um, powerful, right? I'm not talking about a a firearm necessarily. I'm just saying like a knife, a taser, some pepper spray. I I just don't think this pointy little ring is going to do much. And that's just my personal opinion. Again, if you have one and you feel more safe with it, that's great. But I think you should also be realistic about what it's going to do for you. Okay. And I also think, and and Sabrina brought this up on our Run Your First 50K call. It probably wouldn't hurt to have some actual self-defense training to, to understand how to extricate yourself from a situation should somebody grab you or, you know, whatever, get in your personal space. Like understanding how to navigate that would really benefit everybody, myself included. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of other run-focused self-defense tools and things that I'm missing or forgetting, but... My previous statement stands, whatever tool or tools you choose to use, just make sure that you know uh, how to carry them, how to deploy it. And again, uh, as it pertains to firearms and knives, just what's legal for you. Okay. And tasers too, I should say. All right. Um, and obviously the the biggest safety tool that you could have is running with other people. Obviously there's safety in numbers, but if you are training for a race and or your schedule is such that you have to train early mornings or evenings in the dark, then it would be a good idea for you to start getting acclimated with being out alone, okay? And if you're going to have to run at night during your race, there's a chance that you'll be alone at some point or another. So again, 
why not start by microdosing yourself now so that it, when it comes time for your race, you're not freaking out about not only the race itself, but also the nighttime running because you've never done it before, or you've only done it with a group of other people. Okay. That just sort of makes sense to me that you would start practicing in small amounts now. Okay. So hopefully this has been helpful for you guys as you start to navigate running at night. If you have questions, definitely hit me up on Instagram or email me and, um, you know, practice, 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 practice with all this stuff, not only starting to go out as it gets slightly darker and then darker and darker and darker, but also, you know, mapping out or figuring out what safety tools you want to have, what's your protocol for letting people know where you are and what time you come back. Like the more you practice these things, uh, the better and the safer you will be. Okay. Now, if you're just getting started on your ultra running journey, I've got some tools that you might find useful. So if you're sort of like, uh, I don't know, Megan, I'm not really quite at the point of needing to run at night yet. That's totally great. Maybe eventually you will get to that point and then you'll come back and listen to this episode again. The first tool that you will find useful is my free daily shakedown. And this is a short movement practice that you can do every single day uh, to warm up for your workout and work out all the kinks, cramps, knots, soreness, tightness, whatever sort of builds up over time through training. And honestly, I have had people who just are like, I'm not really running all that much right now, but I'm doing the shakedown every single day. And it makes a huge difference in my overall quality of life. One message I got recently was like, where has this been all my life? So if you don't have the shakedown yet and or you're not doing it yet, you need to go get that, okay? So you can go to my website, uh, megan-gould.com, and at the top of the page, it will say daily shakedown. Just click there, give me your email, and I'll send it to you. The second resource is my free 10-week ultra training plan, and this is actually the first 10 weeks of my signature training plan for 50Ks, and it will basically show you how to incorporate walk, run, strength, mobility into a comprehensive training schedule. So if you are great at running, but you're crappy at incorporating all the other things, this will help you to frame your brain around, okay, I do this on one day, I do this on the other and this and this and this, right? So if you're sort of struggling with implementing those things, this will be the thing that you want to get and start practicing off of. You can get that one also by going to my website, megan-school.com forward slash 10 week plan, the number 10 week plan, all one word together. And last, but certainly not least, if you are headed into the off season and you feel uh, overwhelmed, stressed, unsure about what to do, run or not run, how much, how little, maybe you are even someone who starts out really well and then slides, backslides because of the holidays, you lose focus, you lose support, you lose motivation, it's winter, it's dark, it's cold, all those things, then I want to invite you to join me for the off-season RX. There are two levels for this program. Level one is just the training plan. It's a DIY 12-week training plan. 
Uh, and I say DIY because basically you will execute it on your own. I'll send you the link. You can either download it in Google spreadsheet form or in training peaks. And you just follow along on the day you do the workout that's planned. It's got uh, video links and descriptions for everything that you will need. So it's very user-friendly, but if you're someone who wants a little bit more support, accountability, encouragement, and coaching on the sticky spots, the places where you typically have either fallen off the wagon or get frustrated, or you just hit a wall, then level two is where you want to be. So you get the plan plus coaching from me um, in a group coaching format on all the good stuff about the off season. We'll talk about what you should do, what you shouldn't do. We'll do an analysis of your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats. I'll give you some personalized coaching on where you should spend the time in your off season and then what you want to focus on in season in order to hit your big scary goals for the next year, as well as we'll talk about some stuff like how to transition from off to on, how to choose races, how to space them on your calendar, basically how to set yourself up for success in the off season so that when the new year clicks over, you're not freaking out, you don't feel behind, you're not stressed, uh, you haven't lost all of your fitness that you've spent the last year building up. Okay. So if you'd like to get that, just go over to megan-gould.com forward slash off season RX, all one word off season RX. All right. That's where you can get both just the training plan level one, which is 197, or you can get level two, which is the training plan plus coaching. That is 359. All right, you guys, that's all for this episode. Enjoy this beat and I'll see you all soon. 